those who know the biblical narrative in the early chapters of the book of Genesis, you may remember the tragic event where Cain took the life of his younger brother Abel. His name became a byword for trouble, didn't it? And to this day, it it, it still represents trouble, disorder. I've never met any mom or dad who named their son Cain. In fact, they hoped he wouldn't raise so much of it as he's growing up, right? In fact, in the 14th century, if you do a little word study, which I did, you find that this phrase, raising Cain, appeared in literature as an expression of summoning up the spirit of evil, uh, even of summoning the devil. In other words, you were raising up evil, you were raising up devilish things by raising Cain. Today, the expression raising hell is basically the modern equivalent to raising Cain. However, if you went out on the street and you said to somebody, even someone unfamiliar with the Bible, that your neighbors were raising Cain all weekend, they would know what you meant. They would know that you're referring to your neighbors making a lot of noise, probably some really loud party, and maybe even doing some unholy things. Several decades ago, Orson Welles produced one of the most often watched movies in in history. The name of it is Citizen Kane. Although he changed the spelling of the leading character's name to K-A-N-E, his leading character was an obvious allusion to this Old Testament character, a man who over time became a ruthless, arrogant businessman who virtually destroyed all that was precious in life. And so Citizen Kane was an obvious illusion, not only of the ruthless tycoons that the movie sort of hinted at, but ultimately to Adam's firstborn son. To this day, the mere mention of his name brings up something negative, something discomforting, something disorderly, something sinful. It's interesting to me that the only Old Testament event referenced by the Apostle John in his letters is the biblical account of Cain and Abel. And what John will effectively tell the believer is that the marks of Cain are not to be the marks of Christians. To put it in contemporary language, the Christians should not be raising Cain. Let's find out why. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 John in chapter 3. In verses 11 to 18, which we'll cover today, John underscores three characteristics of Cain. And I'm under the opinion that that he makes reference or allusion to Cain throughout these verses. Begins rather obviously and then not so obviously later on. I'll show you what I mean. The first characteristic of Cain that is very obvious is the ultimate act of murder. Notice how John begins in verse 11. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We'll stop for just a moment here before we dive into this account of Cain and Abel. John writes, this is the message which you have heard from the beginning. The specific word translated message, this is the message, appears only two times in the New Testament, both of them by the Apostle John. 
He's not referring to a sermon. He's not referring to a lecture, some scroll or parchment. He's referring to the basic duty of every Christian life. This is the obligation. This is the distinguishing mark of every Christian. This is not optional. This is standard. And maybe you've been to the dealer and uh, you went to pick out a car and, and you were shown the, the basic, you know, standard package, which amounted to a body with four wheels, two pedals, a steering wheel, and some seats. And that was about it. You got that for this amount of money. But if you wanted a stereo system, that was optional. It wasn't standard. If you wanted leather seats and a sunroof, they're optional. If you want that IT package where you can plug in your, you know, your cell phone, your laptop, your hair curler, your microwave, whatever, uh, all that is optional. You've got to be willing to pay extra to get those things installed. Struck me that what John is saying here in verse 11 is that loving one another is not an option. It's, it's part of the believer's standard equipment. In fact, the present tense verb for loving or love indicates that this is, a, this is the habit and, and continuation of life. It is our pursuit. It is our goal. Love is not some optional sunroof that you might open up if the weather's nice and you feel like it. It's really more like the steering wheel which keeps you in the right lane. So what John is going to do is show us what it looks like to drive your life over a cliff. These are the characteristics of Cain that lead to ruin. They are the opposite of what our lives ought to represent. Notice again verse 11, the latter part, that we should love one another. This is standard equipment here, not an option. Verse 12, not as Cain, the evil one who slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And he slew him. The word translated slew him occurs only here and in John's book of Revelation. It's a verb that speaks of a violent death. In fact, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, which Christ and the apostles quoted from, it uses this word for cutting the throat of a sacrificial animal that's going to be offered. It may very well be implied here that the knife used by Abel to prepare his sacrifice as an offering to God was used by Cain, who cut the throat of Abel with that very knife in this violent struggle which led to Abel's death. Cain hated Abel enough to end his life. So the first and and the most obvious characteristic of Cain is this, this outward act of murder. But I want you to notice next that it also includes the inward attribute of hatred. Simply put, Cain hated Abel. By the way, as we work through these three characteristics, he speaks of murder, and many of us would say, well, that's not me, so this sermon's for somebody else in here. And then he's going to talk about hatred, and that captures everybody, and then he's going to talk about indifference. So none of us have a loophole here today. But he says here 
that there was hatred involved. He nursed his hatred for years. If you go back and study his life, and the hatred in his heart eventually acted out in homicide. You see, murder is in the heart before it is ever in the hands. And I want you to notice the progression in verse 13. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everybody who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This doesn't mean, by the way, that murder is an unpardonable sin. Murder, like any sin, is exactly why Christ died on the cross, to pay the penalty for that sin and every other sin. However, it is impossible for God to forgive the sin of murder if the murderer refuses to confess and repent of it, right? The unpardonable sin is the sin that mankind will not confess. It's been interesting to receive responses from inmates who listen online on Sundays and through the week and order the transcripts which we offer for free. We had one gentleman we were able to meet with not too long ago who said that they ordered the transcripts and they get them and they unstaple them and they hand them down one page at a time down the row of cells in this one penitentiary in Texas. And he introduced me to another man who wrote me about a three-page letter just a couple of months ago who had murdered his wife. He had become involved with another woman And decided that the best way out or forward was to murder his wife. And we're not talking about, you know, some, somebody, you know, on the other side of the railroad tracks. This guy was a white collar businessman. In fact, he was involved in a church I highly respect. His wife was involved in the music program for years. And he planned what he believed to be the perfect murder. Was eventually caught and he wrote me from prison talking about how God had so worked in his life to bring him to utter and total repentance. He knows he'll be in prison for the rest of his life. But in repentance, he has approached God and God has forgiven him, though there are lasting consequences. John isn't saying that that particular crime is unforgivable. But be careful here to go to the other extreme. John isn't saying that you get eternal life by being a loving person. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a wonderful liberal message. You get to heaven if you love everybody. He's saying here that the evidence of having eternal life is by loving other people. Specifically, you'll notice your brother. That is those who are with you in the body of Christ. But you don't love each other so that, you know, when you reach a certain benchmark, God says, okay, you get into heaven. No, you don't don't love each other so you can go to heaven. You love each other as a demonstration that you're going to heaven. You're reflecting the life and the spirit of your Lord. He says here in verse 14, he reminds us that we have passed out of death into life. Hatred is the old life. Love is the new life. Literally, he says, you've migrated The expression, you've left one country for another. You've left the realm of darkness for the realm of of light. You've, You've left the realm of death for the realm of life. What John is basically communicating here is that hatred 
and murder belong to the realm dominated by Satan who is a murderer from the beginning. John 8, 44. He's also saying then that we are most like Cain when we hate, most like Christ when we love. We're most like the kingdom of darkness and death when we hate each other, most like the kingdom of light and life when we love each other. And here's some surprising news. You probably picked up on it in that text. God equates murder with hatred, hatred with murder. Which means God is holding us accountable, not only for the actions of our hands, but the attitudes of our hearts. Actions and attitudes are equally destructive. Hatred is one of these key characteristics of the unbelieving world. In fact, go back to verse 13 and notice the opening. Don't be surprised, brethren. He's saying don't, don't be in the constant state of shock. That's what he means. If the world hates you. If is what Greek students call a first class condition. You can translate it since or because or it will happen. He's not referring to an unlikely hatred of the world for the Christian. He's telling us to anticipate hatred. So you can expand the phrase with that in mind so that the text reads, if, don't be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you and it will. That's what he means. You mean somebody can hate a believer like Cain hated Abel? Absolutely. Read your history books. Read the newspaper. But why? I mean, Christians make pretty good citizens. You know, they keep their word, they pay their taxes, they they mow their lawn every so often. They help others. They, They live lives of deference and humility. So why? For the same reason Cain hated Abel. So let's explore that for a moment or two. The world hates the believer for at least three reasons, like Cain hated Abel. First, because of the way the Christian lives. The believer's life represents a a condemnation to the world around them. A, A life of purity will, on the one hand, breed a measure of respect. But if that light and purity is understood at the core of its foundation and motive, it will breed Anger and conviction and resentment. I mean, you don't even say anything. You're just doing your job and you're getting along and somebody might come along and say, well, who do you think you are? And you haven't said anything. The way a Christian lives exposes the corruption of the world around him. You may find yourselves right now in a pickle jar. And all you're doing is living for Christ and you're just working. Your life, your marriage, your attitude, your purity breeds resentment and hatred. It may not be expressed, but it may be. The world hates the believer because of the way the Christian lives. Secondly, because of the gospel the Christian believes. Our gospel is one of sin and redemption. Our our gospel is both condemnation and and justification, right? Our gospel is both there is a danger of hell and there is a promise of heaven. 
Our gospel is exclusive. It allows no other gods, no other paths, no other faiths. There is only one true faith, the scriptures tell us. Our gospel condemns every other religion as false. It offers no other way to God and to heaven but through Jesus Christ alone. And that breeds resentment and hatred. You travel around the world today, we're, we're sort of sequestered away in, in this wonderful experiment of democracy, but you travel around the world, you go to places like Iran and Pakistan and South Asia and, and uh, North Korea, North Africa, Uzbekistan, Sudan, China, and you discover the reality of news you will not hear, and that is for the most part around the world, it is a war of religion. You discover the reality that those who convert to Jesus Christ do so at the peril of losing their lives. Where a genuine Christian would never conceive of someone converting to another religion as worthy of death. As a church family, we're supporting one family involved in secretly training pastors from one of the countries I mentioned. We don't even tell you where he is. The pastors who come and are trained risk their lives, the lives of their families. If they are ever discovered as they attempt to learn how to interpret and exposit the Word of God. Read the biography of Hudson Taylor sometime and and you'll, you'll be marked by his rather stunning recollection as he planted churches and mission stations in, in China that he, he made the comment in his journal on one occasion. He says, I have never established a church without first experiencing a riot. That much resentment to the establishment of Christianity Can you imagine telling church planters in America, if you want to go plant a church, you have to be willing to survive a riot. I'll sign up. The gospel confronts everything. Ellen says foolish and and flawed and false and fatally, eternally dangerous. The world hates the believer because of the way Christians live Because of the gospel, Christians believe. Thirdly, because of the future, the Christian will inherit. There is a motivation of devilish hatred that can't be really explained in terms other than the kingdom of darkness. Paul said that's our true battle and we wrestle against them. A collaboration of the world with the forces of darkness. The world acts as Satan's ready pawns to imprison, to torture, to discredit, to kill those who in the words of Jesus Christ dare to believe Christ who said that you will one day inherit the earth. I mean, who do you think you are? Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Listen, Satan is just not a good loser. And he knows his future imprisonment is certain and it is eternal. The world hates the believer. 
For the same reasons Cain hated Abel. Abel's obedient life was a rebuke to Cain's disobedient life. Abel's offering pointed to the coming blood sacrifice of the Redeemer, the only way to approach a holy God. It excluded the validity of Cain's offering. And Abel's relationship with God was authenticated by the word of God. And Cain is left out. He nurses his hatred until it turns into homicide. Premeditated murder of the first degree. And keep in mind, Cain is not presented as an atheist. He is devoutly religious. He is a worshiper of God. Deeply religious. Like we're told in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 3, in the course of time, Cain and Abel brought their offerings. I'm not going to have you turn back there because we're going to do a flyover, but... What that phrase means is, in the course of time, it it, it refers to an annual sacrifice. They came annually. Literally, at the end of of a year's time, Hebrew scholars translated. The practice had resulted, we put the clues together, obviously from the atoning sacrifice made by God on behalf of their parents, Adam and Eve, who sinned against God, and what did they do? They did the very first religious act in human history. They covered their guilt with fig leaves. And every false religion since then is nothing more than the covering of fig leaves. God, of course, took the lives of innocent animals, skinned them, and covered Adam and Eve with those skins, portraying, picturing, illustrating for them this key principle of atonement. By the shedding of blood. Sacrifices were not the creation of mankind. They were the illustration of the gospel created by God himself. Of an innocent animal dying on behalf of the sinful repentant worshiper. And and, and Cain and Abel had seen their, their parents before them offering this annual sacrifice to God. This would be the precursor of the high priest who would annually sacrifice on the Day of Atonement in the tabernacle and then later in the, in the temple, finally climaxing, culminating with the final sacrifice of the Paschal Lamb, so to speak, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Everything looked forward to the cross. Every time they sacrificed, they in faith believed the gospel. We look back to the cross by faith, believing he died for us. Cain and Abel didn't come up with the idea, hey, let's get some stones, what do you think, and let's build this thing and smooth out the top and get an animal and shed its blood. And No, God provided that. Atonement was not their idea, God's idea. Indeed, God would be approached only through the shedding of innocent blood. Now, there are some issues that need clearing up in order to understand the murder of Abel. Let me quickly go through these. Uh, first of all, you need to understand that Cain didn't kill Abel after the first time they offered a sacrifice. If you want to understand his, his hatred and what we're told not to be in 1 John 3, you have to understand this. They had followed their parents. They had seen offerings, these annual sacrifices for years. In fact, Old Testament scholars put uh, the clues together and, and placed Cain and Abel somewhere in their early 100s. Cain at about 120 years of age 
when he brings this blasphemous sacrifice. Cain's rebellion against God's prescribed method of worship through atoning sacrifice. It's been building for years. The murder of Abel in Genesis 4 did not follow their first appearance at the altar. They had sacrificed perhaps a hundred times before. Secondly, you need to know that Cain didn't get stuck with the short end of the stick. We know from the Old Testament that he was a farmer and Abel raised livestock. Cain brought an offering to the Lord eventually at this point in time of the fruit of the ground, which he had obviously harvested himself. And Abel brought the firstlings of the flock, which he had raised himself. And the Lord rejected Cain's offering and accepted Abel's offering. And you'd think, well, Abel had an obvious you know, advantage. Poor Cain, he'd chosen the wrong career path. Now, John makes it clear in chapter 3 here and verse 12 of 1 John that their deeds were evil. He's, he's reflecting back not only on the murder, but everything about Cain, including the sacrifice. It was rebellion against God. And he also tells us in verse 12 that Abel's deeds were righteous. That is, they were right. They followed God's prescription for approaching a holy God. He obeyed God's plan. He literally followed the gospel. The third thing I want to point out, and final point, is that God graciously and clearly warned Cain of his growing rebellion. Moses records in Genesis 4 that after rejecting his sacrifice of vegetables, God warned Cain. He said, sin is crouching at your door. Be warned. God knew what was going on. Old Testament. The scholars believe that this scene takes place at an altar which had stood for centuries. In fact, it's interesting to consider the fact that we know from Scripture that Adam will live nearly a thousand years. And ever since Adam, we all live not quite as long, do we? Good thing, though, our knees can't last more than about 60, 70, right? Well, they come to the place where more than likely it was situated just outside Eden, that gateway that through the life, throughout the life of Adam was guarded by cherubim with flaming swords. Must have been an awesome reminder that God is holy and you don't get to God apart from his prescription. Atonement. It would naturally be then at this place where Adam and Eve were exiled, the very place where where the curse was delivered, where the promise of a redeemer was provided, it would be at this place, this altar, probably several altars, where Adam and Eve and then their sons with them would come and offer their annual sacrifices. And how would they know if God accepted them? I would agree with others that God accepted their offerings the same way he accepted many Old Testament offerings from Old Testament saints by sending literal fire from heaven. We're most familiar with Elijah on Mount Carmel taking on the prophets of Baal, aren't we? Where he provided the sacrifice and the prophets of Baal did and they asked their gods, Baal, to send fire. And of course nothing happened, not even a spark. And Elijah prayed and fire fell, licked up the water around the altar and consumed the sacrifice, 1 Kings 18. 
We tend to overlook or we've missed the fact that when Aaron, the high priest, offered his sacrifices in Leviticus chapter 9, God sent fire down from heaven and consumed the offering. When Gideon offered a sacrifice to God, God, through the angel, brought forth, shot forth fire, and it consumed the offering on the altar. First Chronicles 21, David is offering sacrifices for his sin, and God answers by sending fire down from heaven and consuming the offering. In fact, when Solomon dedicates later on the temple to God, sacrificing thousands and thousands of animals and that great dedication in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, that fire came down from heaven and consumed all those offerings. I mean, that'll improve your prayer life when you watch something like that. Wow. Both Cain and Abel, I believe, had seen the fire of God fall year after year after year validating their sacrifice as acceptable. But Cain has at this point, which is where Moses injects the story, has had enough. Rebellion. Of course, no doubt Satan hasn't taken a vacation over these last hundred years. He's been delivering to him the same lies as he delivered to his mother, Cain's mother, years earlier. God... God won't care what you do. I just wiggle room in what he says. God hasn't set up such a standard of rigid practice. I mean, can't any religious act be acceptable if you come with sincerity? I mean, you are using an altar. You are coming at the right time. You do believe in the existence of God. I mean, you're really close. Surely God will take into account all those good things and overlook those tomatoes. Right? It's time you stopped depending on Abel, or maybe your own herd, of bringing an animal to offer your sacrifice to God. I mean, surely God won't be so close-minded. And Cain said, yeah, you're right. So they offered. I believe fire came and consumed Abel's offering, and Cain stood there. Nothing fell. And eventually he slinks away in shame and burning hatred. God really is closed-minded, by the way. The gospel isn't one of many options. It's the only way mankind will ever approach a holy God to worship him and know him. You want to reach God? You want to have your sins forgiven? You want eternal life? God has provided all that for you. In fact, John writes here, look at verse 16. And we know love by this. In other words, if you want to know the greatest example of love... The love of God, and, and, and also how you can have a foundation of fellowship with God, and here's how you can approach God. He, God the Son, laid down his life for us. The aorist active verb, he laid down, it, it refers to a deliberate act, a voluntary act. The crucifixion was not a mistake. 
It wasn't a, oh, what do we do now moment. He willingly sacrificed himself. He wasn't a martyr. In fact, at the moment he chose, he delivered his spirit to the Father. The work of atonement accomplished. This is love. I appreciate one author pointing out the fact that this text is a lot like the first John 3.16. You notice you're looking at 1 John 3.16? You might write John 3.16 on the margin. You know John 3.16. Say it with me. In the beginning, God created... Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> See it if you're awake. All right. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I learned that in the King James, and I still say it just like that. Here's another one. 1 John 3, 16, same thing. He, Christ, laid down his life for us. The cross is all about God planning the way to reach us and for us to reach him. Not because he saw anything attractive in us. You know, we were just a cut above. Oh, no. Because he wanted to save us by his grace and secure a bride as his gift to the son. We were on the side of opposition, Paul says. We're, we're at enmity with God. There's nothing good in our flesh. Even our tongues are poisonous. We're guilty. We're hell-deserving. We are, we are devil-embracing. We're sin-loving self-serving people. We are repulsive to his pure and holy goodness. But here's how you can reach me. I have a sacrifice, holy and pure. You come to me through him. And you can have forgiveness. That's the glory and grace of the gospel of John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16. A famous Welsh hymn that played a significant role in the Welsh revival of 1904 has these wonderful lyrics. I have a commentary in my study by a Welshman, and he included this. Here is love vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life our ransom shed for us his precious blood. Who his love will not remember? Who can cease to sing his praise? He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy float a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world. In love. It's great. And God didn't just say he loved us. Talk is cheap, isn't it? He loved us and he gave, didn't he? He he laid down his life for us. And you'd think, that's a great place for a period. Let's go have an early lunch. No, John isn't finished. He goes on to make this sweeping application, and it gets rather convicting. Notice the next phrase in verse 16. And... I'm not finished. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Self-sacrificing love isn't just for Jesus. I mean, in Jesus, great. We expect Jesus to act like that. But but me? (laughs) 
This is for us? This is what it means to refuse the way of Cain, contrasted in the self-sacrificing love of Christ. You see, when you refuse the way of Cain, when you reject the actions and attitudes of Cain, what you're doing is refusing the ultimate act of murder. You are confessing the inward attribute of hatred. And thirdly, finally, you are resisting the outward attitude of indifference. He just sort of collects all the rest of us who might think we had a way out with this text, verse 17. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. And I can't help but believe John is still thinking of Cain. Because you remember when God came to Cain and said, Cain, where is your brother Abel? And Cain responded with this spirit of you know, sarcasm. Am I my brother's what? Keeper. I mean, who put me in charge of babysitting my brother? It's not my job. In fact, the Old Testament Scholars think he's playing on words in his sarcasm. Abel kept sheep. I'm not going to keep him. You want me to keep my brother like he keeps his sheep? I didn't sign on for that. Why should I care about my brother? The Apostle John would say, Oh, you are, in fact, your brother's keeper. John is referring to one Christian By the way, seeing another Christian, whoever sees his brother in need, he's expanded the brother for the Christian community. Not that you don't help unbelievers, but it's especially critical that the church takes care of its own, especially in the days of John and through the fourth century and even now around the world in countries I've mentioned earlier where Christians are suffering tremendous loss and deprivation. Do you see your brother in need? Do you see theoreo? It gives us our word theater. It's as if here comes a needy brother or sister out on the stage and you watch the drama of their need and instead of responding, he says what? You close up your heart. You shut down your, your affections. Literally, you shut down your kidney. The Old Testament seat of emotions was the kidney. You love somebody with all your kidney. That's not going to sell Hallmark cards. I'm glad it's all your heart now, but that's what he's saying. You shut down the inner affections. You effectively lower the curtain. I don't want to see that. See, it's a lot easier to pray for starving millions that we cannot see than to buy groceries for someone in your church family that you can see. I'd rather pray for the millions out there. It's a lot easier. One poet put a tongue in cheek when he wrote, To love the world, to me is no chore. My greater challenge is the men next door. You want to avoid the indifferent, callous attitude of Cain? 
then accept the fact that you are your brother's keeper. That is, you're obligated to love and care for and help and pray for and serve and lay down your rights and dedicate your time and your ministry and, and, and all your efforts and even your life if so called upon by, by God. We resist the actions and the attributes and the attitudes of Cain. And frankly, we do that by going back again and again and again and again to the cross. It's just right in the middle of this text. We go back to where our prince of glory died. There our cold hearts are warmed all over again, aren't they? There our hardened hearts are softened again. There our selfish hearts are opened again. And and raising Cain, which is the ongoing, ever-present threat in every one of our hearts, is battled back by the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the example of the Son of God. Self-preservation is the law of Cain. Self-sacrifice is the love of Christ. Self-preservation is the law of the jungle out there. Self-sacrifice is the law of love seen through Christ. And John would say it needs to be seen through us. And so we must dedicate ourselves daily not to raising Cain, but to reflecting Christ. Bow your heads for just a moment. Thank you for this text, Lord, and an illustration from long ago that has just as fresh a message and meaning and application to us today as it did back then. Your word truly is alive. It's powerful. It is sharp like a sword. It cuts to the deepest of our intentions and motivation. Hatred for each other can play out in so many different ways. Murder is never beyond any of us. Indifference is a battle we must face every day as we attempt to preserve our own worlds, our own lives, our own comforts. So make us servants like you, our Lord, reflecting you. If you know Christ and perhaps the Spirit of God has provoked some thought or action, I'm going to stop talking for just a few seconds and you talk to the Lord about that. If you don't know Christ, we'd love to, to confirm with you what it means to come to God by His prescribed and only method through the bloodshed of our suffering Savior who, of course, rose again and is coming again. We'd be glad to help you. Let's sing this chorus, uh, Make Me a Servant, Humble and Meek. I think we've sung it in the past, and it's probably familiar to many of you. Here we go. Make me a servant, humble. Oh,
get five steps out of here. God bless you.